Brothers and sisters, I would like to ask you at this time to please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to open our time together this morning in the Word. Our Lord God in heaven, as we come now before your Word, I ask, Lord, that you would humble every heart in this building, that we would have a more realistically and accurately smaller view of self and a more accurate and revealed view of Christ, that we would see him as he is, that we would have a corrected view, that we would not diminish him in our sight, but that we would acknowledge that he is king, ruler, authority, Lord, I ask that for every heart in this room that doesn't know you, that today would be the day they see Christ as genuine treasure. And for, the, for those of us who do know you, we would properly value Christ and see him as worthy of all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Bible is such an incredible book. It is full of wisdom. It's infused with divine power. And if you were to do nothing for the rest of your life except study the Word of God, you would never fully plumb the depths of the Scripture. Even an eternity would not suffice to ascend to the fullest heights of the Word of God. There are many reasons that this is true. Chief among them is that the Bible is not a human creation. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The word is theomnustos, the Lord breathed it out. It originates from the mind of the eternal God. Anyone who claims to have fully and completely understood and absorbed and digested and comprehended and mastered the Word of God is essentially claiming that they have also fully understood the mind of God. The Bible is a well that never runs dry because the mind of the author has wisdom that is boundless and beauty that will never be matched. But there are also many other reasons why we come back to the same passage over and over and over, and we still see new things in it, where we haven't yet come to the bottom of it. Part of the reason is due to the fact that the Holy Spirit is not always doing the same thing. He's not always teaching us the same truths from each passage. For example, the Holy Spirit has used Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd passage, at various times in my life to teach me different things. From those short six verses, he has taught me at times to be patient in God's timing, or to trust in God's sovereignty, or to look forward to heaven, or to how to be a better shepherd myself as a pastor looking to the example of Christ. And many other truths, just from those six verses that I memorized way back when I was probably six years old, sometimes the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to different aspects of verses at different times. Sometimes we fail to fully understand a passage because we just don't have life experiences that help us grasp it yet. For example, those passages about Jesus welcoming little children and showing immense kindness to them Those were far more meaningful to me after I had my own children. It revealed to me the kindness and the selflessness and the love of Jesus in a whole new way when I understood how loving parents want nothing more for their kids than for them to go to Jesus and be welcomed by Him. 
And as I read those passages now, I am able to grasp them in a deeper way because the Lord leads us sometimes through life experiences that allow us to see the metaphors in His Word more clearly. And if we're honest, most of the time that we fail to understand the Word is that we don't even try. We're lazy. We don't even read it. Or if we do read it, we read it and we don't examine it. We don't consider it. We don't meditate upon it. Oftentimes, we just take the book and we put it on the shelf and we leave it there to collect dust until a need arises in our life when we say, I need that right now. Closely related to this, there are times when we don't grasp what Scripture is saying because we just read it too quickly. We come to a passage and we feel as though we got the gist of it. I get the point. So we move on with our life. Well, over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is cover Acts chapters 24 through 26, and we're going to do so quickly. In my opinion, there is one main point that's being made in those three chapters, so we're going to use that as a unit from the pulpit. Uh, But there is something that I want to do before we blast through these three chapters. Acts 24 through 26 contains trials of Paul before three powerful political rulers. Next week, we're going to see the way that each of these men, these three rulers, fail to properly respond to the gospel. But for this week, I want you to feel the weight of one aspect of these verses that is easily overlooked. Consider the words of Acts chapter 24, verses 24 through 27. It reads, After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor... Felix left Paul in prison. Do you see what's happening here? Felix is holding out for a bribe. He knows that Paul has done nothing worthy of being imprisoned, so he's willing to let Paul go if Paul will just slide him a little bit of cash under the table. But Paul, being a man of integrity, remained in custody for two years. A lot can happen in two years. What has taken place in your life over the last two years? Just over two years ago, there was a merger of Gateway and Redeeming Grace Fellowship. Imagine all of the things that have occurred in this one congregation in our unified lives over two years. There has been incredible amount of spiritual growth and edification and maturity and discipleship that has taken place within that period of time. And now think about it. The greatest missionary who ever lived, possibly the greatest Christian who ever lived, who is at the height of his ministry, was arrested and spent two years sitting in a prison cell. And to make matters worse, the only people that he ever had opportunity to talk with, as far as we can tell, was Felix, who was only talking to him in order to get a bribe. God, in his providence, knew that the best thing for the kingdom of God at this time was to actually have Paul, this great missionary Paul, completely sidelined for these years. But do you realize that at any point, at any point, Paul could have been let loose? All he had to do 
was give Felix some money. And even before all of this mess began, all Paul would have needed to do in order to be set free and to quell the mob in Jerusalem was very simple. All he had to do was deny Christ. All he had to do was recant all of the teachings and to reject the message of the resurrected Jesus. And then all of his enemies would have just disappeared. All of this begs the question, why would Paul do this? Furthermore, why would Paul later appeal to Rome even though he knew that the likely outcome of being tried by Nero would be the death penalty? Why was Paul willing to seemingly throw away his time, which is the greatest treasure we have in this earth, or even his life? To put it succinctly, why was Paul willing to give up everything? I think Paul explains it well in his own words in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. He says it like this. He says, but whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, trash in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Paul, he has counted the cost. He has done a full and thorough cost-benefit analysis. He has accepted the fact that losing everything in this life is completely worth it if he can only receive one thing. It's what he calls the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That word surpassing is one of those words that I think it just doesn't hit as hard as it should in the English language. In the original Greek text, this is actually the word that is uh, huperico. It's a combination of two Greek words, hyper and echo. Uh, Hyper is obviously where we get our word hyper. That's just a word that every parent in this room understands really well. It is a preposition in Greek that means over or beyond. When you tell your child that they are being hyper, they are being over or beyond where they should be. Well, it's what happens when you add that word to the beginning of another word. It it just indicates that that has gone out of control. It is absolutely overflowing. The way that we most often see this used as a preposition in English is in economic terminology such as hyperinflation. The second word is echo, which means superior or excelling or surpassing. If he just used this word by itself, it would have said the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. But he doesn't leave it by itself. He combines it with the word hyper. Therefore, his heart was saying, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Paul was willing to endure these two years in jail because he is literally saying that he is hyper-superior to everything. Today, what we are going to do for the remainder of our time is to examine a few things that Jesus had to say about this way of thinking back in Matthew chapter 13 in two back-to-back parables. They are short parables, some of the shortest that Jesus ever taught, but Jesus was highly efficient with his words, and these three verses pack a massive punch So if you still have your Bibles open to Matthew 13, please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 44 and going through verse 46. These are the words of the Lord. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's it. Three verses. Two parables. Highly efficient. In these two parables, Jesus presents us with a way to think about value, a way to think about worth, a way to do a cost-benefit analysis of your life. The way that we're going to break down these three verses is by considering the following three aspects of finding treasure. First, we'll look at discovery. Second, we'll talk about valuation. And finally, we'll talk about sale. First, let's talk about discovery. In 1989, a financial analyst went into a flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania. There he saw a large painting that he liked, and so he purchased it for $4. According to the man, he went home, and then he attempted to get a closer look at a rip that was in the corner of the painting. And when he was trying to get to it, he says that the frame of the picture fell apart in his hands. It just crumbled. The man then realized that behind the painting, there was a pristine copy of the Declaration of Independence. He swiftly had the item appraised, and it turned out that it was not just a copy of the Declaration of Independence. It was one of the original 500 copies that was printed on July 4th, 1776, by John Dunlap that was intended to serve as the original announcement to all 13 colonies that they were rejecting British rule and were claiming independence. After he discovered it, there were some accusations that were levied at this man by the flea market vendor who suggested that this man had actually discovered that the Declaration of Independence was behind the painting while it was still in the flea market, and that's why he purchased the item in the first place. That's why he bought this unimpressive painting of cows in a field for $4. According to the seller, he discovered that it was valuable, so he then bought it, took it home, dismantled it, and he found what he had been looking for. The man decided to sell the declaration through the famed Sotheby's auction house right here in New York City. But before allowing the item to go to auction, Sotheby's had to make sure that this man had the right to sell it after this kind of purchase. And after making sure with their lawyers and all of the background legal necessities, they discovered that, yes, he had full right, even if he knew ahead of time, he had full right to conceal that knowledge, purchase it for the given price, and become the rightful owner. On June 4th, 1991, Sotheby's auctioned the item for $2,420,000. At that time, it was the highest price in history for any piece of historic Americana ever sold at auction anywhere in the world. In the parables that we just read, we find two very different men. One of them appears to be a man of common means. The only price of a field that we learn about in a New Testament text is the price that the, the priests posthumously purchased in Judas's name after Judas hanged himself. The price of that field, the field of blood, was 30 pieces of silver. That's not a very large amount of money in reality. There were multiple kinds of silver coins in circulation at that time, so we're not 100% sure which coins were used. But if we just assume the absolute largest value of coins, which was the tetradrachmas, if that's the coin that was being used, then 30 pieces of that kind of silver would be worth roughly $14,000 in today's money. Now, that is a lot of money, 
but it's not a lot of money if you think about it in these terms. The man sold everything that he had and then bought the field. My guess is that most of us in this room, if we were to sell off everything that we had, would end up with well over $14,000 in our pocket, and that's the best case scenario in terms of how much money that field probably cost. That field happened to be in a high district area near Jerusalem, a place with location, location, location. Therefore, it was probably quite expensive compared to the others. And if this was not the largest form of coin that was used, the smallest valued silver coins in that day, 30 of them would equal roughly 400 modern American dollars. So what we can say safely is what Jesus is presenting to us in this man is that he was not a man of means. His entire value, his entire portfolio would have equaled between $400 and $14,000 in today's currency. That's a pretty low net worth. The other man that Jesus speaks about is a merchant. That's the term that's used for him. He seems to specialize in pearls or maybe generally in jewels and gems. Either way, I have never met anyone in a profession like that who does not happen to have a pretty well-stocked bank account. It appears as though this man is on the upper end of the socioeconomic ladder. The image that is intentionally being presented is that these are two people from the opposite ends of society and with wildly different earthly net worths. Yet, both of them found a treasure that would require them to give up everything in order to get it. Think back to your own salvation. Think back to when you heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit caused all of the pieces to click into place for you. Maybe that was the first time you ever heard the gospel. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe you had heard about Christ all of your life, but in that moment, you knew that there was nothing else in the world that you needed except Jesus. You needed his forgiveness. You needed his love. You needed the salvation that he promised. You needed Jesus. And when that discovery happened for you, what happened? What would you have given up to find Christ? When that discovery happened for Paul, his entire life was left behind. He went from being the most notorious enemy of the church to being the most prolific church planter in the early church history. His former friends, his colleagues, what, what did they want? They wanted to kill him. They literally shut down the city and tried to block him in so that they could capture him as he tried to leave and execute him. His former workplace, the Sanhedrin, is the exact same group that in Acts 22 through 26 are trying to have him killed. Paul saw, Paul saw the surpassing value, the hyper-excelling value of knowing Christ. Maybe you haven't experienced that moment yet. Maybe you're here because it's tradition. You come to church on Sunday. Uh, possibly you're here because your parents make you come. Perhaps you are here and you don't even know why you're here. But just let me tell you, there is treasure here. By here, I don't mean this building. By here, I don't mean this room per se, but the gospel, the good news of the scripture, that is where you find incredible treasure. That is where you find Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, Jesus asks two back-to-back -back questions. He asks, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's very possible to go through life thinking that everything you are chasing is worth chasing. The spouse, the house, the hobby, the career, the car, the vacation, the retirement, the fill-in-the-blank with whatever it is that you might be chasing. What if you catch it? What if you get it all? Will you be happy? 
Realistically, the answer is no, because those things cannot satisfy you. But let's say for the sake of argument, let's just say for the sake of argument that it did. Let's just say for the sake of argument you did get everything that you were chasing, and it did make you happy. Is it worth the cost? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? If you have never seen Jesus Christ rightly, if you have never bowed the knee to him as Savior and Lord, then you have never known real treasure. You have been collecting fool's gold your whole life. If you have never trusted in Christ, I am telling you today that there is treasure in this field, that there is a pearl of great value, and it is worth it. What makes something valuable? Scarcity and beauty. The modern church has, by and large, moved away from speaking about God in terms of beauty. But the Bible is not shy about using those terms to describe the excellence and perfection of His being. Consider Psalm 50, verse 2. It puts it this way. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Jesus is the perfection of beauty. He is the platonic ideal of beauty. And when we speak of scarcity, if God were to give you anything else, literally anything else in the universe, he could just make more. If God gave you all of the gold in the universe and you had a storehouse, you had a warehouse where you had every block of gold that had ever been smelted in the history of the world, every ore deposit had been mined and it was yours, he could just make more. If God gave you anything other than himself, he could just make more. The only thing that God did not create and that he cannot multiply is God himself. And God, being exuberantly generous, has given us his son, his only son. He is true treasure greater than any other treasure you could find anywhere. There is no more for heaven now to give, as we sang earlier. He is valuable. That is discovery. Point two, valuation. In 1996, there was a woman who worked at Chameleon Thrift Store in Hereford, England. She was invited to a special black tie community event, and so she went into the racks of the store where she herself worked to look for a dress to wear, and she purchased a dress that she thought would look nice. She ended up not wearing it to the event because when she got home and tried it on, she realized it was so fancy. She just thought it was too pretentious, so she put it back on the hanger and put it in her closet. 22 years later, that same woman was sitting on her couch one night watching a documentary, and she saw Princess Diana wearing the very same dress. So she rushed to her closet, she dug it out, it was still on the original hanger, and she was shocked to see that it was indeed an exact match. After some investigation, she learned that it was not just a match, it was the match, She found out that it was a handcrafted, one-of-a-kind dress that was made explicitly for Princess Diana to wear to a royal ball. The woman eventually sold the dress to a British museum for 200,000 pounds. One of the biggest challenges in the book of Matthew is understanding the phrase, kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it appears as though he's talking about the church. Uh, Other times it seems like he's referencing the eternal resting place of all believers, Sometimes Jesus seems to be speaking about a collected people that you would normally associate with a kingdom, this collected terminology. Other times, like this one, we read about it and it seems as though Jesus is actually referring to individual salvation. In this parable, Jesus is certainly using the phrase 
kingdom of heaven to speak about what happens when an individual gets saved. But what exactly does happen when somebody gets saved? Well, there are many things. Let me just list a few. When you get saved, you are regenerated, meaning that you were born again. Your sins are forgiven. They were atoned for at the cross. As such, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are free. You are no longer filthy with sin. You are washed by God and given a clean conscience. You are adopted into his family, meaning you are no longer a child of the devil, but you are now a child of God. You are a new creation, as it says, the old has gone, behold, the new has come. You are reconciled to God. You are justified before God. You are redeemed by God. You are indwelt by God, and your eternal life is sealed by God. Listen to the terms of value and worth that the Apostle Peter uses to describe our salvation in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's break down a couple of those terms, shall we? He refers to your salvation as an inheritance. What is that? What is an inheritance? It is something that you are given freely, that you did not earn, that you did not work for, but it is given to you freely, and it becomes legally yours. Peter says that this inheritance is imperishable. Jesus says that we should not store up our treasure on earth where moths and rust destroy and thieves can break in and steal. Earthly treasures are destroyed. They can fade. They can fall away. They are perishable. At the very longest, you can keep them until you die. Then who will these things be? As the old saying goes, you can't take it with you. But the value of the kingdom of heaven, the value of salvation, is found in part in the fact that it never perishes. It has in itself the promise of eternal life. Not only is it imperishable, it is undefiled. This is amazing because you and I, we are sinners and we find ways to defile everything. Whether with our actions or our thoughts, we find ways to pervert and twist and sully and corrupt and distort and taint everything in our lives. But the promise of the Lord is that our salvation is perpetually undefiled. If we have been given the incredible gift of salvation, the Lord keeps it pure for us. Even when we fall, even when we fail, even when we sin, If we have been truly forgiven, our sins were placed on Christ Jesus at the cross, and our internal inheritance cannot be defiled. Peter also calls our salvation unfading. It doesn't shrink. It doesn't lose its luster. It doesn't diminish in value. It doesn't fade. And don't miss the fact that it says it is kept in heaven for you. 
That word kept means guarded or watched over or protected by God. He is the guard. He himself says, I will guard and dedicate myself to ensuring that your salvation is sure. Peter goes on to say that faith in Christ is more precious than gold. What does precious mean? It means to be cherished. It means to adore. It means that it is an object worthy of affection and attention and delight. It is to be highly valued. And according to Peter, all of the gold in the world compared to knowing and trusting in Christ. That woman who bought Princess Diana's dress, she had something of incredible and rare value in her closet for 22 years. Just hanging on the hanger, doing nothing. And she knew it was valuable. That's the thing. She knew it had some value. That's why she never got rid of it. According to her, she never had any, any inkling to throw it out because she said, I knew it was beautiful. But she had no clue how valuable it was. The two men in Jesus' parables took one look at the treasure and they said, that's worth selling everything if I can just get the treasure. Oftentimes, we do not properly value the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. And most of the time, we do not properly value Jesus Christ himself. The things of this world that should grow strangely dim instead begin to be tempting to us and have great appeal for us. But the things of this world should grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Which brings us to our final point, the sale. In 1992, a truck driver named Terry Horton purchased a painting by Jackson Pollock at a yard sale for $5. After getting it tested, they determined that it was a real Jackson Pollock because it literally had his verifiable fingerprint plainly imprinted on one corner of the painting. Terry Horton was offered millions of dollars by dozens of different collectors throughout the years. And the largest public offer that was ever made known was $9 million. But there were many other private offers that are believed to exceed and maybe even double that number. Yet, this woman, this truck driver, this Terry Horton, she refused to sell it. She loved the painting, and she wanted it to stay in her family. And personally, I don't get it. I don't know if you've ever seen a Jackson Pollock painting before, but it kind of looks like what's left after my daughter finishes her high chair tray, you know, spaghetti and whatever else is left over. That's kind of what a Jackson Pollock painting looks like. But for her, she looked at it, and she saw that it was beautiful, and she wanted it, and she wanted to keep it. So this particular truck driver valued the painting more than she valued cash. So she refused to sell it. So now it belongs to her son, who has also refused all offers. Now, you know me, I don't get very political, but I think we can all agree, left and right, let's make thrift stores great again. Why can't we ever find any of this over here at Unique? <laughs> Most of the time people hunt for treasure, they're not hunting it for the treasure. They're hunting it so that they can sell it. They aren't so much interested in the treasure as they are in what the treasure will give them. But the kind of treasure that we hunt, that we are told to find in Scripture, is not something we find in order to sell it. It is that we are to sell everything in order to get it. Following Jesus is not a small thing. Jesus tells us that we are to count the cost of following him. Now, contrary to Dave Ramsey, the point of this passage has literally nothing to do with finances. It's not about money. Listen to it in context, Luke chapter 14, 27 through 28. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether it has, he has enough to complete it? What's his point? The point of what Jesus is saying is this. If you want to be my disciple, you need to pick up your own cross and you need to follow me. This was not like a common metaphor. You hear this all the time. Now people say, you've got to bear your own cross. This was not a common metaphor or a saying that people used back then. Jesus is the one that made this saying popular. And what is he speaking about here? He's talking about carrying the element of your own death. Go pick up your own cross. Jesus was literally saying, if you want to be my disciple, it will cost you everything. You need to carry your own cross. You need to be ready to die for me. Modern-day American Christianity is easy and relatively painless compared to most Christians in the world today, and certainly most Christians throughout the history of the church. It may not always be that way, but right now Christianity is easy. But even if it was hard, even if it was the most difficult thing in our lives to continue to proclaim Jesus in the face of a bunch of enemies, it's still worth it. And if you have to lose some things, it is worth it. You may lose friends, you might lose a raise, you might lose the closeness that you have with relatives, you might lose your reputation. Paul lost his freedom, eventually he lost his life. And so, he thought it was worth it. It is worth it because Jesus is treasure. He is the definition of worth and value. He is worth losing everything. If you still happen to be in Matthew chapter 13, if you have that open in front of you, look back to verse 44, and let me read that for you again. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Did you notice those three words? In his joy. Joy, he goes and sells all that he has. It's easy to sell everything if you know you're getting something better. It's easy to lose what this world has to offer you if you understand that that is all finite and passing away. The cost-benefit analysis here is not even close. It's not like the scales are barely missing each other and almost equal in the middle. It's so overwhelmingly lopsided that it should be a joyful thing for us to give up everything necessary in order to have Christ. Or as we read in Philippians 3 earlier, count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you put everything in the universe, everything you could possibly gain on one side of the scale, and you put Jesus on the other, Jesus wins every time. So much so that it would break the scale. The early church understood this. Consider Hebrews 10.34. It says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and look at this part. You joyfully accepted, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They joyfully accepted it when people broke in and they stole their stuff just because they were Christians. Why? I want you to notice something about the last line there again. Do you notice that it does not say, since you know that you yourself had better possessions? Possession, singular. There is one thing that you have, one thing that abides. It isn't saying that you have storehouses of treasure waiting up for you in heaven, whether that's accurate or not. It's saying that you have Christ, the one and only genuine treasure that matters. If you have everything but not Christ, you have nothing. 
And if you have Christ and nothing else, you have everything. Let's pray. Our Lord, I pray that you would help us to rightly, accurately, properly attribute value and worth to Jesus Christ. That everything else in the world would have its proper place after him. Lord, I ask for anyone in this room who knows you, who follows you, who loves you, but who is distracted by the things of the world right now, who has fallen sway to the culture of materialism that exists here in our world, or who is just focused on everything except for Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would radically correct that today. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not seen the value of Christ because they've never once heard the gospel or trusted the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to the fact that there is treasure in that field and that they would see it worthy of selling everything they have, getting rid of every other goal or desire in life in order to gain Christ and be found in Him. Lord, I pray that there would be a proper valuation of Christ in every heart in this room. May your name be lifted high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.